Hello, and welcome to the Fuel Run Recover podcast, helping everyday runners fuel better, run smarter, and recover faster so you can reach your full performance potential. I'm your host, Stephanie Natchek, dietitian, fitness coach, and a fellow runner too. As the owner of Stephanie Natchek Performance Nutrition, I've spent the last 10 years helping runners learn to fuel their bodies, level up their running performance, and establish healthier relationships with food and exercise. If you're ready to reconnect with your love of running, then let's get started on today's episode. All right. So before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to invite you to check out a few great free resources that I created just for runners. To get them, all you have to do is click on the link in the show notes or visit www.stephanienachuk.com. If you visit my website, there's a little pop-up box that comes up and it'll prompt you to enter your email address and these guides will be sent right to your inbox. The first guide is my fueling guide for runners. So in this resource, you'll find my top fueling tips for runners, as well as some specific meal ideas for both your pre and post run fuel. If you've been struggling to understand what to eat when to support your running and just figuring out like what those meal ideas, like what those meals look like, what kind of foods you should be including before versus after you run, what the difference is between pre and post run fueling, then this guide is exactly what you need to get you started on the right path. The other guide that I created is my strength training guide for runners. So this guide includes both a PDF resource, has some tips, guidelines, and links to my YouTube series where I actually walk you through all of the exercises in the program. This is a great beginner strength training guide for runners who want an effective but efficient full body workout that helps support the key muscles and movements you need to run stronger and injury free. So once again, both of these guides are available together. I have them put together as a little bundle for you. You can just click on the link in the show notes or go over to www.stephanienatchek.com, enter your email address just the one time, and both of these free guides will get sent to your inbox right away. I hope you enjoy these resources and find them helpful in supporting you and your running. And now let's get into today's episode. All right. So I am so excited to be sitting down today with Elizabeth Scott. She is a fellow running coach and host of the Running Explained podcast. And we are here to have a conversation today, not as your two expert coaches on running, but to really take ourselves down a peg and get really humble and share some of our running mistakes. So we kind of, we, we came up with this idea after we recorded um, an episode together for the Running Explained podcast a couple weeks ago that we really both wanted to have an opportunity to share some of the things that have gone wrong along the way. And to just highlight the fact that running is always a learning opportunity. There's always more to learn and, and ways that we can grow and learn not only about running as a sport and nutrition and all the stuff that goes into it, but also about ourselves and you know what works best for us along the way. So we are, are coming here today with what will hopefully be a fun, uh, casual, maybe even funny conversation about some of our biggest uh, training and nutrition blunders. And of course, you know, maybe some of the lessons that we learned along the way. So thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me here on on my show. And uh, yeah, welcome. Thank you. No, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about this. Um, anybody who knows me at all uh, knows that, you know, I created Running Explained 
because of all the mistakes that I made when I was a newer runner. And I, my whole thing is that like, I made all these mistakes and I, I, I made them. So now I'm going to teach you how not to make them. Um, and, but like you said, you know, running is a, is a, a lifelong learning process and there's always more we can learn. So yeah, we're going to talk about some of the, some of the doozies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hopefully, hopefully you, someone can delight in our misery and not go through what we went through. <laughs> Yes, yes. Or maybe not along with, yeah, you know what? I did that too. And mm-hmm. I know that we both have a, a shoe story coming up in particular. And I want to hear your shoe story. And I'm going to tell my shoe story. And I hope that everyone else can delight in our terrible shoe stories. But I, I want to kind of take us back and, and and sort of, you know, start by hearing a little bit more about um, Elizabeth, the new runner, and your running origin story, how you got into it. Yeah. So I grew up playing sports. I think like most people do Um, running. I I was never somebody who ran though. Like I ran in service of my other sports. Like I ran to off season for cross country skiing for Nordic skiing. I ran as part of my like JV lacrosse and JV soccer career. Uh, You know, nothing, nothing too substantial. And then I, you know, graduated high school and uh, discovered drinking and went off to college and took up my new sport of drinking and basically didn't, didn't exercise in any capacity beyond a couple spurts here and there of like hitting the gym for a couple months at a time and then losing interest. Um, But anyways, I, I developed a really serious alcohol addiction in my twenties and I got sober when I was 29 and And that was the catalyst of like, okay, I've like, now what, you know, (laughs) like I have this new life. Um, I, I want to, I want to be healthy. I want to be healthy in all ways. And so at the time I wanted to lose some weight, admittedly, I'd been leading this incredibly unhealthy lifestyle with, with alcohol and, um, you know, like just like everything that comes along with it, right? Like midnight snacking and just, you know, subsisting on alcohol, which your body can use for energy, but nobody should be using it for energy. Um, And so I signed up for a local 5k because I wanted a way to keep me accountable to help me lose some weight. And in my mind at the time, I was thinking cardio is hard. Cardio burns calories. I'll just do cardio to lose weight. Um, it quickly snowballed into, into this, uh, career that I have now and that I absolutely love. But the first, I'm going to say the first 18 months of my career as a runner, um, was like, I think I made almost every mistake that one can make (laughs) from doing, and we'll get into this, but like too much too soon, you know, what I was doing on days that were supposed to be easy, but weren't, uh, you know, just picking random goals, um, not fueling like everything. So when I really decided to kind of buckle down and thought, thought to myself, like Elizabeth, like you love this and uh, the things that you have found you, that you had questions about, like you found answers to when I scratched the surface, I just kind of started falling more and more in love with the sport and the science of the sport. And I got really serious about learning as much as I could. And then I started coaching and doing what I do today with running explained. Um, but the whole, like I said, the whole point of why I did what I do is because, you know, I made all of these mistakes when I was a new runner. And I'm very lucky that generally speaking, knock on wood, and we'll talk about this later on, um, none of them seem to have caused me any lasting damage. Although one of those points is up for debate. Um, I I don't want anybody to have to be sidelined by one of these relatively avoidable mistakes um, like I, I could have been. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, my my journey into becoming a runner was a little bit different in that I I did not play sports as a child. I was a decidedly unathletic young person. 
But when I was in university is when I sort of discovered, you know, fitness as a whole. And then that, you know, translated into, I was studying nutrition, I was getting my nutrition degree. And I knew that, of course, I wanted a career in nutrition. And I got interested personally in fitness and, and really sort of thought to myself, like, well, I can teach other people how to do this. So then sort of became this, this kind of combination of really wanting to, you know, teach people about, about both fitness and, and healthy eating. And it kind of, you know, snowballed from there for me. And I think that my biggest mistake is, you know, with the knowledge that I had, or sort of in those early days, the knowledge that I had, not being able to apply that knowledge to myself. So if you asked me a question about like nutrition and exercise and, and all of these things, like I could tell you what to do. But if, if I kind of, turn that around and reflect it on myself. I, I think one of the things that held me back in those early days and, and my biggest blunders were really around uh, just not being able to apply that information and, and kind of use it for me. So we all, you know, regardless of where we come from, what our background is, what our history is, you know, we all definitely uh, make some mistakes along the way. And it doesn't matter sometimes how educated or knowledgeable you are about certain things. Um, you know, this is why it's always great to have those moments of self-reflection and, and have those tools to to keep us accountable along the way. And I will also say like, as, and like what you said, and I, you know, it's not like we're sitting here being like, and now we know everything and we never make any mistakes ever. We're blameless. Like that's not true because we're both still (laughs) human. Right. And like, I don't coach myself anymore. I have a coach and I think, you know, it's to, to know intellectually and to apply, even when you know all of the things to completely different things. And I will say I am much more likely to apply my knowledge to myself these days. But there are some days and I'll give a recent example later on, where like, yeah, I'm like, okay, that probably wasn't the greatest decision. (laughs) You know, I know I knew better and I did it anyways, right? So, um, you know, just because we have the knowledge, you know, we're still human beings. Yes, absolutely. So tell us about your very first kind of your very first race and and then maybe your very first big race. So you said you you first signed up for for 5k and then that blossomed into, you know, what eventually became your very first marathon. So tell us about those first race experiences, what mistakes you made along the way, and most importantly, what you learned. Yeah. So I think uh, this is probably, and I've said this before, um, I would never, ever, ever recommend anybody do this. I, I, fell backwards into this. And, and only in retrospect was I like, oh God, like that was, <laughs> you were really lucky nothing bad happened. So I mentioned that I, you know, quit drinking, started running and sent it for a local 5k. Um, and so I, I started running in July and I lived in central Florida at the time. And he moved been to Florida in, in, uh, in July. Um, understands that it is hotter than the surface of the sun. If the surface of the sun were also 100% humidity. So that's how I start like very, my very first run. I like I'm outside in like a cotton tank top, you know, with like my wired headphones, couldn't even run a mile, like just dying, dying, dying. And the 5k that I'd signed up for was at, um, uh, was the end of September. Right. So July, August, September, I had like two and a half months to train. Um, I, and in these early days, I think because of my mix of early sobriety and just the fact that like, I didn't, 
I didn't, I wasn't recording it on anything. Like I know, I've no, like I just kind of had these recollections of like, I don't know how I discovered how to train. Like I remember like one day I was just out for a run in my neighborhood, trying to complete two miles without dying. And the next memory I have, I'm like running eight miles on a treadmill. Like it's very weird. It's very spotty, but I'll basically, um, I I fell backwards into this where I decided in classic overachiever fashion, I think a lot of us runners tend to be overachievers, perfectionists, that the best way to prepare for my 5K, my very, very first ever road race, was that I was going to run a 10K the weekend before just to make sure <laughs> that I could complete my 5K. <laughs> And so within the first, so the first, you know, my first race was not a 5k. My first race was actually a 10k that I'd found on Groupon that I ran a 10k. And I mean, there was no pacing involved. It was still hot as heck out. Um, you know, I like I'd found I'd gotten proper running shoes at that point. That was a problem early on. I had terrible shin splints because I was running in these like Nike freeze and, you know, went from zero to, you know, 15 miles a week and overnight, which is a problem. Um, and so I finished my my first 10K. And when you're new or you kind of or I'll even say for people who are coming back from a t- from time off you genuinely have no idea like what you should be aiming for. So when somebody asked me like, oh, what's your goal for this race? I like, I had genuinely no idea. I'd never raced before. I didn't know where I was supposed to be aiming, what was like reasonable. Like I, I didn't know if I was supposed to walk, if I was allowed to walk, like what pacing quote unquote meant. And so when they said like, well, what are you aiming for for this type? Somebody asked me like in the start line, in the start. And I, you know, <laughs> I was like, I don't know, under an hour. Like I had no idea what this meant. Right. But somebody said that running a, a 10K in an hour was good. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do that. And I do remember very distinctly. This is the, the very first mistake I ever made in my racing career. I got in a Garmin at that point and I had my running watch and I had all my data and I, we start this, my very first ever road race and I take off like a shot and I look down and I'm running. <laughs> I swear to God stuff. I'm running like, I'm running like six minute per mile pace, right? Like I am just like sprinting, you know, off the start, um, which is a very classic going out too fast maneuver. Long story short, I negative split that race. I did finish in under an hour, but I, I mean, sorry, I positive split that race. I did not negative split. I, I There was walking involved. My husband has a picture of me late in the race on a down step. I'm practically leaning backwards. I'm so fatigued. Like I can barely keep myself upright, but long story short, I finished this 10 K and I was like, Oh, I guess I'm, I'm prepared for my 5 K then. <laughs> there you go. Next weekend, I ran my first 5 K and then I figured, well, if I can run a 10 K, I bet I could run a half marathon. So I signed up for a half marathon that December finished in a respectable time, uh, despite having terrible IT band syndrome, um, which was, uh, probably not helped by doing, increasing my volume so rapidly. And then if I figured if I could run a half marathon, I bet you I could run a marathon living in central Florida. The racing season is in the South a little bit different from the season in the North. So actually you race in the winter and the closest marathon to me in the next six months happened to be the Walt Disney World Marathon, which is a month later. So uh, I signed up for that and I ran it. <laughs> um, and like I said, sh- still at ID Phantasm, shockingly, amazingly. And oh, by the way, I was running fasted this whole time, which we can talk about later. I wasn't eating at all before or during my runs and races. Um, 
And so, yeah, I did that it, all in six months. I made like every in, every mistake you could possibly make in practically the first six months of me running, um, including mistakes that you make when running both half and full marathons. So, um, yeah, I it was it was a crash course. And I didn't some of these lessons like the lessons on fueling, you know, it took me a lot longer to learn. But oh boy, did I learn so many lessons, um, including don't run a marathon six months after you start running. I would, in retrospect, it was a cool experience. I'm glad I did it. In retrospect, I would have not done that. Half marathon? Sure. Absolutely. That was great. I would have, if I could go back in time and be like, Elizabeth, you don't do this. I would not have run that marathon. I would have waited a little bit longer um, to, to chase after that, that distance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's so, it's, it's wonderful that despite all of that, you are still here today, like as a runner, someone who still loves the sport and you kind of, despite how, despite what you put yourself through, you were able to kind of come out the other side and, you know, really grow into it and, and kind of understand and learn. Whereas for a lot of people, that experience would be so traumatizing that they would either decide that they're just not ever going to be a good runner. Running, running isn't for me. Running is too hard. I, I'm just never going to be good at running and, and just completely quit altogether when it's like, no, if we actually do this properly and we, we build up slowly and, and we kind of get into that mileage in a comfortable way, you know, it's amazing what you can accomplish and what you can achieve if you just like give your body the time to do it. And so like, that's, you know, honestly, the fact that you went through that, you put yourself through that and you're still here as a runner today is a huge win. <laughs> That, I, like I said, it's ridiculous. So like, I am shocked that I didn't get a stress fracture. Like, I'm shocked that I did it, right? I'll, and I'll be honest with you, and I said this on another podcast recently, um, you know, I do believe that I have a, a predisposition towards this sport. Like, I consider myself a relatively durable runner. I do not get injured easily. Both my parents have a background in, like, very – they're very talented endurance athletes. So, like, you know, if somebody's like, that's insane, like, how could you? It's like, I will freely admit that I probably have – I'm not an elite runner. I'm a normal, normal person. But – I know that I probably have some sort of advantage somewhere in that I could do this without getting seriously injured where other people, if I were somebody else, like I actually may have ended up with a broken foot or a broken tibia or something really bad could have happened. Totally, totally. So my first race um, was a half marathon. I had never raced before (laughs) as you do. I don't I don't think that I had ever even done a 5K before I signed up for that first half marathon. Again, you know, the early days, I mean, we're talking things that happened over a decade ago. So a little bit fuzzy, but I don't think I'd ever even had a, oh no, sorry. I did a 5K about two weeks before my half marathon, but that was like a last minute sign up thing, as you do. As Um, you do. But I I love that the best way that you felt to prepare for your 5k was to sign up for a 10k because in my mind the best way to prepare for my half marathon was to run a half marathon every single saturday as my long run for pro- I, probably a good 12 if not 16 weeks prior to my my race i kid you not i kid you not and i ran 100% of those close to 100% of those on the treadmill cuz it was winter time so here, like where I live in Winnipeg, uh, we have like our Manitoba marathon and it's in the middle of June every year. It's on Father's Day. And so when you start your training, and I knew I'd start my training early. So I, I did give myself some lead up time. So in like, you know, say January or whatever, I, I started running more often, quickly built up to doing this 13 mile long run. And I just did that 
every single weekend. And I, I don't know if in my mind, I can't remember now if in my mind, I thought I was going to get faster at running those 13 miles. I, I can't really remember exactly what I thought <laughs> was going to happen on race day as a result of doing this, but I didn't do that much training during the week, but you know that I showed up <laughs> for that 13 mile long run every single weekend. Um, and again, just like you, where you had heard somewhere that like, okay, to do a 10 K in under an hour is like a respectable time. So I guess that's my goal. For me, I felt like, okay, a 10 minute mile is what I should be running. That's a good pace, I guess. And, you know, probably someone confirmed that for me. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, that's a good running pace. So I set that treadmill to six miles an hour and I ran the 13 miles at six miles an hour every single Saturday. And while that was fine, I mean, the, the race was fine. I had an injury. It's because of the shoes. We're going to talk about that. But, um, well, that part went fine. It took me so long to get faster than that. Because once I tried to implement that strategy again in the next race that I did, once I tried to just pick a pace and stick to it and run, but now this pace was going to be faster than the previous 10-minute uh, mile that I've been running before, uh, it took me so long to get faster. I had so many disappointing half marathon experiences in between then and when I actually learned about polarization. Of training. And once I started to actually implement these strategies of polarization, that is when my half marathon after that, I shaved about 10 minutes off of that finish time. So, you know, yes, I got lucky in that it was my first race and, and probably whatever it did for training was going to get me somewhere. I got really fortunate in that respect. And, and because I was coming in with a good sort of background of nutrition, I, I sort of understood nutrition and fueling. I probably didn't do it all that well being kind of my first race experience, but it was, um, you know, better than maybe doing a lot of fasted running along the way. Um, that, that was sort of what, what saved me. I also had a weird, cause I was doing a lot of treadmill training because Florida in, in the summer, yeah. right. So kind of the opposite problem you had. Um, and also for me, the treadmill was like my safe place. Like I, I, cause I was like, Oh, if on the treadmill, I can hold this pace. And for me, yeah, it was like a 10 minute mile. Like if I was running 10 minute mile pace, like I was it was good. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. It's really, you that? Had the same experience of like, it, I, I did this thing and in my mind at the time, like it made, I had a reason and the reason made sense, but I can't for the life of me remember how I justified it in my head at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think was really beneficial for me was that going into that very first race, um, you know, I had been only strength training for years before that. So my, my background, of course, like the nutrition piece, and then I also, um, am a personal trainer. So I wasn't a running coach and, and was pe helping people like with, with running planning and, and all of that, but it was all strength-based. So I had spent years just really building up my strength before embarking on that sort of thing. So, um, you know, kind of similar to you where you would not recommend doing that. I certainly wouldn't either, but I think because I had been just doing so much weightlifting and my, my body was strong enough to be able to handle that training load, even though it, it definitely wouldn't be a recommended strategy and, and a recommended approach. I had a friend who at the time was also planning on running that same race with me and you know, she, she kind of shows up at the gym one day to kind of hop on the treadmill beside me. And we're going to do this 13 mile run together. And, you know, she ended up not being able to do it, um, because of knee problems that, that popped up for her because she was just sort of joining in on this plan that I was already partway through. And she just didn't have that same background that I did in, in terms of the strength training time that I had put in, in the years prior. So, you know, we, we both, you and I both, Elizabeth, we, we've gotten very fortunate with some of these mistakes that we've made, but there's 
hundreds, thousands, millions of other people who have made the same mistakes and haven't gotten so lucky. And, you know, that's why we are sharing these stories, not as a, hey, look what we did. Aren't we so amazing? It's no, please don't do these things because we probably just skated through. We just got by on this. And I'd also like to point out what I'm hearing both of us say is really talking about, especially as, as a new to the sport, is having a real anxiety about performing in a certain way, as in like looking for that guarantee, right? Like I wanted to be so sure I could run a 5K that I signed up for a 10K. You wanted to be so sure that you could run your half marathon. You ran that half marathon at that distance, at that pace every weekend for months. And for me as a coach in retrospect, you know, hearing that is just, um, it is just, it just screams like anxiety and like, I want guarantees. I want to know for sure that I can do this on race day. And when your training is driven by that desperate search for certainty, like that can lead you off the path of proper training really quickly. And so I think one of these types of mistakes are so common for runners new and even experienced runners to make sometimes because we're all we're we we so desperately want that guarantee of success that we do these things that don't actually get us towards that goal. And so what this is really what I feel like this is where this is coming from is like we're just so like just I want to be so sure that I can do it, you know, when we prepare in this way that's actually inappropriate for helping us reach the goal we're trying to achieve. Well, you know, what's so funny about that too, is that like you, we, we've all gone out and we've done a 10 mile run and that 10 mile run has gone great. And we've had days where we cannot run 10 miles. So why do we think that because we did it in training, we're just automatically going to be able to do it? Like there's so much, especially around, you know, running a full marathon, right? Most people do not, should not complete a full marathon distance as part of their marathon training plan. And that causes a lot of anxiety for people that they haven't practiced and, and gotten through. But as we all know, there's still no guarantee, you know, that all that all is going to go well, whether you do run that distance in training or you don't run that distance in training, you know, maybe it, it calms some of our mental nerves. But unfortunately, the reality is that that race day is always going to be a bit unpredictable. Even if we prepare as best as we can, you don't always know what's going to happen, you know, weather or just a bad sleep, whatever it's going to be. Um, we, we have to not hinge kind of all of our hopes and dreams on maybe this one specific run that we accomplished in our training. Yes. And I think sometimes when we, I was actually thinking about this, this weekend and I had a long run for, I'm training for the Boston marathon I had a long run this weekend. Um, I was actually thinking about this very specific concept because I even in up until more recent training cycles, you know, I was very much like the, if I, if I can complete this one very specific run or workout, that's, that's my make or break, right? That will, that's what I'm resting all of my confidence on. And I've had training cycles where, the capstone of my training has been a disaster. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but an effing disaster, right? Like it was yeah, one yeah. long run that I had before I ran a marathon PR. My final long run in that training cycle, I stopped in the middle of the long run and broke down sobbing because it was going so poorly. And then five weeks or four weeks later, not even, I ran a PR in the marathon, right? And then I've had other race training cycles where the caps or, you know, the capstone workout or run in, I was like, oh, oh yeah, I'm going to nail this on race day. And race day was a disaster, right? And so, you know, it, it, that's, I think, one of the hardest things for um, for any runner to really come to terms with is that there's, there's never going to be a guarantee. 
No, no, absolutely. And and I love that you mentioned that because what I always, I often like to say to my clients is, you know, your last couple of long runs before you start your taper will probably be harder than you're expecting. Like you, you are probably going to feel very defeated or anxious, like set the bar low, (laughs) set the bar very, very low for those last couple of big long runs, because the, the fatigue is building up the, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, we're, we're trying to recover and, and nutrition and do all of those things. But like, you know, your body is getting close to that point where you need that taper. And so what I what I like to remind myself of and, and remind others of is, you know, hopefully it will not feel this hard on race day as it does in those last couple of, of long runs. You want to be, uh, you know, prepared. But yeah, that, that's that's very funny and, and such a common, I, I think, thing that can kind of get up all in our heads about it. We, we get, you know, a lot of those mindset uh, troubles and, and a lot of anxiety and worry, which definitely does not contribute to a positive race day experience. So now that we've covered a couple of the things that we have done very poorly with our training and our approach to training in those first couple of races, uh, I want to hear more about your nutrition mistakes, because as you said, in the beginning days, in the early days, you were all about the fasted running. So tell us more about when, when that no longer served you well and what you learned along the way. Yeah, this is a tricky one. So I actually, so back then we're going to go way back in time. I fell down the keto rabbit hole in the early 2010s. I don't even remember how I found it, right? Like I'm an internet denizen. I hang out in a lot of weird places sometimes. <laughs> but I discovered, you know, keto and how magic it was supposed to be. Back, I want to say, I want to say when I was getting married. So about 2013. And uh, I wanted to lose weight from my wedding dress, right? Um, cut out carbs, boom, magically, blah, blah, blah. And um, kind of was like on and off the keto bandwagon. So ketogenic diets, meaning extremely low carb, extraordinarily low carb, you know, with the uh, information that they give you is that you try to keep your carbohydrates below like 20 grams per day. Um, and that you should eat, you know, it's a higher fat kind of moderate protein diet. And the literature and information that I had been exposed to about keto and like the books that are written about it and exposing the modern food industry and how sugar is destroying us all. I really bought it. I bought it hook, line and sinker 100% because like many modern American women, I have a funky history with food, right? I got a weird history with food and sugar and my body and diet culture and all these things. So when this, you know, when I was being told like, oh, it's not your fault. It's just big, bad sugar. Stop eating all carbohydrates and not only do you will you feel amazing but you'll feel special like you're in this part of a part of a club that nobody else understands or knows about you have this amazing secret to lasting health and longevity by not eating carbohydrates so when i quit drinking and i wanted to lose weight along with my cardio what came with that i was like oh i'll just stop eating carbs again right so i went very low carb And I mean, I was like militant about it. Like it it was a problem. Like in retrospect, I'd probably describe it as almost like cult-like. I was indoctrinated. There was like, it felt like brainwashing. Um, And so I was very, very low carb. And obviously, you know, I didn't feel comfortable eating before or during runs because I had gut issues, right? I felt full. I felt bloated. In retrospect, that was probably a sign of under fueling. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, for the first, um, I'll be honest with you, 
like I said, you know, 18 months or so of my running, you know, I not only wasn't eating carbs, but I wasn't fueling before or during my runs. Um, and not even my marathon, like I ran two marathons on water and salt tabs. Um, it sucked. I definitely could have ran a lot faster had I fueled, but it felt like I was doing something special and I was still getting faster. Now, in the long term, what ended up happening? That long term carbohydrate restriction actually ended up what I giving me what I think ended up being reds, relative energy deficiency in sport. And so despite the fact that I was in most of the time eating relatively enough energy overall during the day, um, the carbohydrate, chronic carbohydrate restriction eventually caught up with me. And so I developed some really serious issues like endocrine issues and some um, gastrointestinal issues and some issues with my micronutrient deficiencies that I am only now feel like having worked on this for about a year and a half and now finally coming out the other side. So it took like 18 months of no carbs, finally started eating carbs again, but still it was like not really eating enough and kind of feeling spotty and things weren't getting better and they weren't getting worse, but they weren't getting better. And then anyways, finally got help for it last year. Um, so all of this, that was my number one biggest mistake. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily go like all in like I do. I, de I definitely tend to be kind of like I'm all in or I'm all out. Um, but you know, even for people who say like, oh, you know, I just like, I just don't like, like to fuel on long runs because I'm like, no, that's not an option. Like if you work with me one-on-one, -on -one, you're fueling your long runs, you're fueling your training, right? And if you have trouble with that, like I'm going to refer you to a dietitian, somebody like you, Steph, like this is non-negotiable because not only is this your performance we're talking about, this is your actual health. And so when I said before about like kind of alluded to, I, you know, hopefully none of these things have lasting issues is that it wasn't necessarily even a mistake I made about my running, but like I, I was sold this line and there's all these weird online communities that will tell you that actually low carb is more beneficial for endurance performance and fat adaptation and blah, blah, blah. Um, that, that actually ended up causing me really serious health issues. And to the point where there was a, about two years ago, like I was wondering if I was ever going to run again, like if, if it was ever going to feel good again. Um, so that's my story with my new big nutrition mistakes. I'm happy to say that I am fully fueled and feeling good. <laughs> yes. um, but when, if so, you know, I've had somebody ask me like, why do you talk about nutrition so much? As I'm like, well, I'm not a dietitian. That's why I have people like you on the podcast and talk about educating people about fueling, but because it is so personal to me, because I don't want anybody to go through what I went through and potentially have it take them out of the sport or cause them long-term lasting health issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's so helpful, I think, for people to hear these mistakes and, and kind of being able to come out the other side and say, there was a period of time when running felt so awful. And and this is, you know, what I hear from people who are, are coming into my circle to work with me is that they're running, you know, they're they're signing up for races and, and they're putting them through themselves through these things, but the running doesn't feel good. They are not getting faster. They're not seeing improvements. A lot of times they're also not seeing the weight loss that they thought they were going to, you know, like they, they sort of get stuck in that the, the result that they were anticipating from the low carb eating or the fasted eating, um, is no longer there. Because I mean, if people don't think they have a problem, they're not going to seek out help. If, if they think everything's great and they're doing fine, then, you know, they're, they're not going to come and work with someone like us. But it's when they're, they're feeling stuck. It's like, I don't, 
feel comfortable. I don't feel like I can eat carbs because I've been told so many times that those are bad and I should avoid them. But then on the flip side, the running sucks <laughs> and I'm not getting stronger and I'm not getting better. Or I'm getting all these injuries. And it's it's just like all this sort of mishmash of, of different diet culture information swirling around in, in people's minds. And when we can you know, kind of guide back, back to the light, kind of bring people back over to this area where it's like, you know, we don't have to be afraid to fuel. We don't have to be afraid to eat. We don't have to feel bad, especially as, as women about taking up our space in, in the world and, and being okay with eating and, and people seeing us eat and, and admitting that we like to eat food and, you know, and, and really thinking about that performance nutrition aspect. It's so powerful and so freeing and, you know, having role models who have gone all the way through that process is just such a, a wonderful, valuable story, I think, for people to hear. I think sometimes when we, when people like me, and I know that, you know, we, there are a lot of people who've gone through what, similar things and uh, whatever it is, kind of a story and a lot of pro runners coming out now and saying, oh, yeah, no, I totally got taken down by low energy availability or by reds, right? It took them out of their career is that something like this, terrifyingly, it kind of works in the beginning. And that's what gets you because it does work at the beginning. I genuinely felt really good. I mean, for, you know, for being a new runner and like I was getting faster and I was losing weight and everything was trending in the right direction. And I, I felt good, you know, all this, but like so many things in running, it's that it's cumulative, right? So little did I know is that I was slowly day by day depriving my body of these nutrients until it worked until it didn't. And when it stopped working, it stopped working hard. And there was actually a point I remember it really, really stopped working. This is going to tell you a really disgusting story. So hold on to your hats. Because um, I, 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 this happened to me and it was only the past about six months that I actually realized I connect the dots. But like, oh my God, that's what this was. So I'd started eating carbs again kind of on and off, but I was still I probably actively restricting and trying to stay low carb whenever possible. And one of the things I decided at the time was that I was allergic to wheat, not gluten, but whatever. I decided allergic to wheat. And right before COVID hit, so this is about three years ago, which is terrifying to say that it was that long ago, about three years ago, my husband and I went on vacation to the Bahamas. This was like the week before COVID. And we went, and I was at the time the thinnest I'd been in my entire adult life. Um, and my running was okay. It wasn't great, but I was running like high mileage and kind of handling it well and went to the Bahamas, went out to dinner at this really nice restaurant. And I decided because we're on vacation, I'm going to quote unquote cheat, you know, on my diet. Yeah. And I, I ate the bread and I ate the thing. And halfway through dinner, I started getting feeling really bloated, like really uncomfortably bloated. And I'm like, this is weird, you know? And so we, I'm like, it was to the point where like, I didn't eat dessert. Like we had to leave, you know, kind of early. And I was like, I feel really disgusting and kind of bloated, like really, like I kept burping. I'm like, this is weird. I just want to go to bed. Uh, it must've been the wheat, must've been the bread that I ate. I have no wheat allergy, by the way. This was, you know, something that I told myself that I had. <laughs> and this is where it gets really gross. I kept burping, these like nasty, like sulfurous burps. And I was like, I felt really full and bloated. And I was like, this is so weird. And I have to like sit up and like burp. And I was like, this is awful. Like what is happening? I feel sick. And um, eventually, like maybe two or three hours later, I like finally threw up everything in my stomach, you know, you know rejected all of it. The next couple of days, you know, I felt really weak and kind of shaky. I went for a run anyways because I was on a run streak. That's another issue. Um, you know, went Can't back. break the run streak. 
chalked it up to like I I know right I was like actively thought I had food poisoning and went on a run streak anyways in the Bahamas um you know everything's up to I thought I had food poisoning and we you know packed up and then went home and literally a week later COVID happened um I googled it (laughs) and long story short what I was experiencing was called gastroparesis which is essentially a, a a temporary paralyzation of your gastrointestinal system. What was happening was I wasn't my digestive system due to long-term underfueling had essentially decided it didn't want to work anymore in that moment. And so the dinner that I'd eaten had, was just sitting in my gut and sitting in my stomach and like literally fermenting and be, instead of being digested. And that was kind of the end point of my like multi-year journey of simply not giving my body enough fuel. And <laughs> I'm actually weirdly grateful for COVID because that allowed me, because when races were canceled, it kind of gave me an opportunity to stop focusing on quote unquote performance and more about like, that was weird. Maybe there's something wrong and I should be focusing on like my health instead. And I started eating carbs after that. But so I, I tell this story because it was such a bizarre experience and I had no idea what it was connected to. And then come to find out, you know, years later, um, Oh, that's a sim- that's a symptom of long-term chronic underfueling. And like and so if anybody's experienced anything like that, maybe you should talk to somebody. <laughs> well, and and that's a great example of what, you know, what you did and how you responded to that situation is different than what a lot of people would do in that they would immediately start looking at what caused me to experience this after that meal and get further into the belief that you have some kind of specific food allergy or intolerance that's contributing to those symptoms. And we see that all the time in this gut health space where, you know, someone's having symptoms, we start restricting and kind of cutting out foods and and eating fewer and fewer things because everything we eat is causing these problems when the problem is the underfueling. And once we correct the underfueling and someone's digestive system is able to function optimally, they have the nutrients and the the calories and the fuel their, their whole body needs and their digestive system needs to function the way that it should. Now, we we can eat just about anything, right? We, we kind of expand our horizons on these tolerances. But when the belief is that there is some specific problematic food, and of course, it's often pointed to things, whether it's, you know, the dairy, the gluten, or, you know, kind of that, that um, whole host of popular items that we end up wanting to cut out, or we start going down the route of like food sensitivity testing, where now you are, you know, submitting blood samples or whatever for analysis for them to tell you that there's, there is this big list of 30 things that you shouldn't be eating. And it just gets us deeper and deeper and deeper into these disordered eating patterns. And, you know, yeah, that is something that if, if anybody is listening to this and is suffering and, and struggling with digestive issues, before you start to cut out foods, before you start to assume that there is some kind of allergy or intolerance process happening, first thing we have to look at is are you fueling properly? Are you getting enough energy? Yeah, it was really scary. It was really scary. Like I thought there was something legitimately like wrong with me, right? I thought that like, you know, there was something very, very wrong. And I'm lucky that in the time that that happened, I'd already become more immersed in like the education about sports science and started reading 
things that would were educating me about proper nutrition. And so this concept, it was like the seed had already been planted in my mind that like maybe carbs aren't that terrible. And I think at that point, I'd already started experimenting now and then with like, maybe I should try some gels on my runs. Like I I'd, I'd had some gel, you know? So like I the door had already been kind of like cracked open to like, maybe this isn't how you're, it's supposed to go. Like maybe, maybe you shouldn't, you know, maybe there's a different way, a better way. And so that was really, I think, kind of almost like the final straw where it's like, okay, something's really wrong here. Um, But I also want to say, and this is, I think, something that a lot of people struggle with. Like I mentioned before, I was also the thinnest I'd ever been. And there was something incredibly addictive to feeling and looking that way, where in retrospect, I look back and say, girl, like you were you were in trouble and you were concerned about what size of jeans you were wearing. Like, uh, that's (laughs) that's that's messed up. (laughs) But at the time it felt really validating, right? Um, so, you know, if somebody it has those types of thoughts in their head, they're like, I think something's wrong, but the way that I look feels very good. Like not like maybe not physically, but like emotionally what I see in the mirror is good to me. You know, I, I it's okay to have both of those things in your mind at the same time. And I understand why people feel I've been there. Like I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to, of course, so my background is is in nutrition. So I had years of, of nutrition education and, and stuff like that before I really started getting into running, especially getting into, you know, racing and, and half marathons and stuff like that. Those first, those first races that I did. But I still, you know, even despite sometimes having that background of knowledge and education, we can still make nutrition and fueling mistakes. And I think for me, where a lot of that came from in my early days was not having enough confidence in the information that I I knew or that, or that I thought I knew. And so, you know, I, I would, of course, not be afraid to fuel with carbs and not be afraid to eat carbs just because of, of what I had learned in my education. But then, you know, somebody would would sort of mention something to me about, oh, well, you know, there's this ultra runner. And I can't remember who it was at the time, but there was somebody who was like running and like eating sticks of butter as he was running these ultras or, or there something were like that. There were a couple guys. There was, and again, yeah, probably there were, around that there same were a couple time, guys. Yeah. 2010s and era of, and yes. I, and I mean this to say, it wasn't, it, they were men. Like, I think it's a very important distinction. There were two, like very, a, a couple, like very accomplished ultra running men in the sport who are like, they eat bacon and avocados and look at them set world records, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, and so what I did, because, and, and this was a, a colleague of mine, like it wasn't just some random person who had mentioned this to me, it was a colleague of mine. And they were like, oh yeah. So, I mean, you know, maybe like carb, carb loading and all that stuff is like not really that valid and we don't really need to. And I, you know, was sort of like, oh, okay, well maybe that's like the latest research and, and this is sort of the newest information. And, and so then I sort of took that kind of more seriously than I should have. And, and, you know, definitely missed out on, on some of those fueling opportunities, especially carb loading opportunities for races, because I just didn't have the confidence in what I knew or, or sort of what I thought I knew. And that that's kind of where it comes from. And so it it really goes to show that it doesn't matter how much kind of knowledge or education you might have, whether it's not a lot in the area of nutrition or whether it is a significant amount, you can still kind of get um, pulled off your path by somebody and you, you can still sometimes kind of get drawn in the wrong direction. And I mean, fortunately for me, um, it never became a problem in, in sort of that sense. Like it, it definitely didn't get as far as it did with you or as it does with a lot of people. Um, but I have had disappointing 
race experiences because I did not allow myself to fully fuel because of some of these other opinions and and kind of other things that I was hearing about fueling. Whereas now it's like, nope, you need to be fueling. Like that run is only 45 minutes. I don't care. You're drinking a Gatorade and you know, like just, I'm, I'm so much more passionate about it because I just think that as soon as we start to have fears around like, oh, well, well, this is too much sugar and oh, I need to be careful about how much I'm having and, you know, start to go down that pipeline and we separate out like what is optimal for performance versus what do I need to survive this run? Those are two different things. And where where I want people to live and, and how, where I want my clients to thrive is in optimal performance nutrition, right? I don't want people to just barely make it through their training sessions and just scrape by and, and just drag themselves across the finish line and just barely be able to make it back home after these long runs. We want to feel good when we run and we want to really see how how much can we push our bodies physically because we're putting in the nutrients, we're putting in the things that we need to be able to do that. We only get out of ourselves what we put in. And so if we're underfueled, we're we're not giving ourselves the nutrients, the energy, the carbs that we need to succeed, then it we we just can't really reach that full potential. And and once all the pieces come together with the proper training, with the nutrition, and, and then of course, adding in the recovery to all of that, now it's like, wow, I can't believe what I can do. And so many people think that, you know, they, they get into their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and oh, I'm, I'm never going to get faster. You know, they, they sort of come come to to work with us. And, and maybe you see this too, with the mindset that like, oh, well, I'm past my prime. I'm past my peak days. You know, I'm, I'm over 30. It's all downhill from here. But if you've never trained or fueled properly, there is no need to, there's no reason to believe that you are past your peak in terms of performance. You know, once all these pieces start clicking together and, and all the puzzle starts fitting, it's amazing what you can actually do when it all comes together in that way. I will also add hydration. I know we kind of focused on like the fueling, like the carbohydrate intake, but the hydration, that was a huge thing for me. I didn't quite understand my personal hydration needs <laughs> and living in Florida and training for marathons. Like I go out for a long run with my two liter backpack and need my husband to come pick me up at like mile 12, or I would stop at the Seven Eleven and like chug a Gatorade zero and then get home and like throw up. Like it was <laughs> like, it was I was like seriously dehydrated, but I was like, but I'm carrying the most water I can possibly carry. Like it's also, I'm a late sleeper. It was like, in the, you know what I mean? So it was like these kind of like compounded mistakes where it, where it was like, well, and I could have looped back and like, you know, changed out my water bottle or I could have probably slowed down a little bit. We'll talk about that. I'm sure about easy runs, you know, but so the, I, I love what you said. It's not necessarily just about what do you, what's the minimum you need to literally keep yourself alive, but like, how can you perform at your ultimate best and feel like a badass. And I promise you that does not end up with you vomiting into the kitchen sink because you're so dehydrated after a long run. Yes. It it doesn't need to be that hard. (laughs) It can be better than that. And you deserve for it to be better than that. (laughs) All right. So the next, the next topic that I wanted to cover, I think this will be um, a funny one. I don't know, funny in a bad way, will be some of the biggest mistakes that you have made with gear. So telling us uh, any any big lessons learned around gear, uh, where is the worst blister you've ever gotten? <laughs> yeah. So I actually, one of the worst blisters I ever got was 
in the last year or so, and it was um, I sometimes you get blisters like bet- on the between your big toe and your second toe. All the time I get blisters there. All the time, and I got one on my on my left foot, and it was sometimes just like a nasty blister. And I know you're not supposed to, but you know, I'll take a I'll take a needle and sterilize it and kind of drain it, right? But I came home from a run. This is probably about six months ago. And I took off my sock and I knew I had a blister there. Um, and there, it was like, it was like, there was blood in this blister. Right. So I'm like, I'm like, oh, gross, cool, but gross. Like, oh, I probably should, you know, drain this. And I'm like assessing it. And my husband comes in and he's just like, oh my God. And like runs out of the room. And I was like, it's just a blister. Like I get these relatively frequently. That was bad. Here's the thing though. You shouldn't be getting blisters all the time. If you're getting blisters all the time, something's wrong. Like I get blisters occasionally. You're more likely to get them in wet conditions. You're more likely to get them in shoes that are worn out because your foot's going to kind of get, as the materials get compressed and kind of stretched out, your foot's going to slide around a little bit more and that extra um, sliding around and shear can create some issues with your, you know, skin and create blisters. So you're not getting blisters all the time. Something's wrong. That was my worst blister. And my my worst gear story is also shoe related. Way back when, we're bringing it all the way back to my very first marathon. Okay, so I mentioned when I first started running, I got shin splints because, of course, I did <laughs> because I was running in a pair of um, I think they were Nike Freeze, like not running shoes, like shoes you would lift in, right? So not no support. Um, I was new. I went would did everything, you know, went from zero to, like I said, 15, 20 miles a week, practically overnight. Of course I got shin splints. So when I went to the running shoe store, a very reputable store in central Florida called track shack, by the way, I walked in and I said, I'm training for a half marathon and I have shin splints. And he, the guy watched me walk and he said, well, let's put you in a stability shoe. I'm like, okay, I guess that makes sense because I have shin splints and I have high arches. I guess my shin splints are being caused by my arch collapsing. So the stability shoe will support my arch. That's not what I needed. I do not need stability shoes. Many people don't. So I was running in these stability shoes and things, and I started getting some other weird issues and I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of shop around and and I want to find some other shoes. So this is about three weeks before my marathon. And I went to Dick's Sporting Goods and they were having a sale. And so I found this pair of, I don't even know what they were. They were Nikes. Found a pair of like bright pink, orange Nikes. And they were, I think they were my size-ish. Like they were good, but they were on sale. They were like $60. And I was like, and they oh, were I'm going to buy these. They were really cute because they were, guess what? They matched the shirts that I was planning on wearing in my marathon, which was also kind of a Nike pink, orange, purple thing. So I bought them and I was like, these look awesome. And I brought them home and I wore them on one run and I was like, cool, I'm going to wear these. And so when I laid out my race day outfit, I was like, I'm going to wear my new shoes because they're going to look really good in pictures. Absolutely. Oh my God. Those shoes, you guys, those shoes didn't fit me. Like (laughs) obviously don't run a marathon six months after starting running, but I was... I was pretty convinced that by mile 18, like I had a stress fracture in my right foot because of these shoes, like the way that they're like hitting the bottom of my foot. And I mean, there was a lot of, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, fueling during that marathon. Like there was a lot of stuff wrong, but I very distinctly remember like the shoes were also independently a problem. Uh, and I don't think I ever wore those shoes again. Like I wore them like for one three mile run and then I wore them for 26.7 miles with my overages. And then like, I'd like put them in a box and I was like, I never want to see these shoes again. Um, don't ever, ever, ever wear new shoes, especially not shoes that you are unfamiliar with the brand or the model 
on race day, especially not a marathon. Just don't even think about it. Don't do it. So I have a similar story, except that I kept wearing the shoes. <laughs> now you have to understand. So where I live in Winnipeg, um, it has taken us a very long time to get like good brand sporting goods stores. Like our Under Armour store just opened like not that many years ago. So before, like you had to drive to like Minneapolis, for example, you had to like drive seven, eight hours away to go to the Under Armour store. So like when you went on a trip to Minneapolis and you went shopping at the Under Armour store, like you were stocking up. So go to the Under Armour store. And they had, again, a very cute pair of shoes and they were probably on sale or they were some very, very good price, but they were really good looking shoes. And I thought, well, these are great. So picked them up. And those are the shoes that I wore to run that 5k race. That was a few weeks before my first half marathon. And I, I ran that 5k in these shoes that they, of course, they were not running shoes. These were very much cross training oh. shoes. I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> like, I, I don't even know if they were like proper training shoes. Like, they might have just been like cute looking Under Armour shoes, but they were like green and blue, and you know, they they were they were nice looking shoes. Um, and this is a very bad habit of mine that has persisted almost to this day. Is that I do really tend to buy shoes based on the look of the shoe and the color palette of the shoe versus wanting to buy shoes that I probably need. That we can have that conversation another time about my tendencies there. But um, so after this five k, and, and there was a little bit of like it was mostly a road, but there was like a little bit of sort of trail stuff, some up and down, and and some little like rocky bits of this five k. So. The, the next day, my, my knee was killing me. So right at the front and, and sort of bottom of my knee was in a lot of pain. And, and that was new for me. I hadn't experienced knee pain before uh, as a result of running. So anyway, you know, I, I get through, you know, kind of struggle through the rest of my training for the half marathon, get through the half marathon, definitely had some, some knee pain and, and then continued to run you know, before doing anything about this knee pain, just figured it would go away on its own and then, you know, continued to run, but couldn't make it past a few miles at a time. But I kept wearing these, these shoes. <laughs> like I kept trying to make it work with these shoes. I did not get another pair of shoes. I just kept trying. They kept hurting. Um, anyway, so it turns out, and I, I think this happened during that 5k race was that um, the joint locked in this like sort of forward position. So an athletic therapist and, and my massage therapist who kind of managed to like fix it for me and then, you know, gave me a proper rehab plan and, and whatever. But that was fortunately my only real like, you know, significant injury that I had experienced. But uh, yeah, no, I kept wearing those shoes. Yeah, I've actually, it's funny. I feel like I'm swinging in the opposite direction. Like I'm actually, I bought a pair of trail shoes um, the other week because I considered them to be aggressively ugly. I was mm, like, for you. these are so, so ugly. grown up. I have to have them. <laughs> So avant-garde. Yes. Very grown I wish up. I could You're remember. so mature. I, very grown up. I know. Well, yeah. they're, they're neon orange. They're fabulous. Not that I do a lot of trail mm. running these days, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, the shoe thing is tough. The gear thing is tough. I mean, um, I, so it's also, I will say I went through a period of time where I buying a lot of like really inexpensive gear. And I, I will say I got, I, I like to buy a lot of my gear secondhand. So I'll buy a lot of my gear from places like ThreadUp, which is an online consignment store. Like most of my sports bras come from there. Um, but um, until recently, I was very much on the like, nobody should ever pay $15 or you know more than 50 bucks for a pair of shorts, right? Like, you know, all this. And then I, and then I bought a pair of Arcteryx 
shorts, like 18 inch, I mean, eight inch, you know, like, oh boy, those are so nice. And so now I'm like corrupted because I see what it's like to run in a pair of $70 shorts. And it is a (laughs) world of difference. I'm hoping that they last forever. I do not tend to throw anything away. Um, But I will say of the gear, invest, I will say this, invest in good gear, right? It's not about buying as much as you can possibly buy. It's about buying gear that works specifically for you and holding on to as long as you can. Yes, absolutely. And and what I found over the years is that, you know, the slightly better quality, and I mean, it doesn't have to be like the, the most expensive stuff that you can possibly get your hands on. But when you do kind of level up a little bit to, to gear, you know, you do get more use out of it in terms of years. The technology that helps like with the, of course, the sweat wicking, and then of course the smell reduction, all that stuff, like you get a lot longer length of time out of it. And for me, I think one of the biggest things where I've I've definitely cheaped out over the years and then paid for it with a lot of, of really unfortunate chafing is with sports bras. And, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot going on in that department. So I don't need to invest in really expensive, really like supportive of high quality sports. I can, you know, probably get away with nothing, honestly. And, um, so I've, I've bought kind of those ones and then, oh my goodness, the chafing that you get from some of these. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a lesson I've learned is it's worth it to, to level up, uh, in things that are going to be touching your skin. <laughs> definitely worthwhile. Yes. And I'll also say hydration vests. Talk about the importance of hydration. The very first hydration vest that I bought was like a $25 one on Amazon that only came with one strap like one single strap so that when I ran, it kind of like flapped behind me like a sail. Like did it go, um, did I, it go over your, like a seatbelt? Like it went across you like it a seatbelt? Yeah. So it was like, it was like a backpack, right? Like okay. again, like $25 backpack mm-hmm. with one single high chest mm-hmm. strap. Okay. Okay. So like you normally you have two straps, like yes. kind of one above and one below your boobs. Like yeah. there was nothing below. So like the back, the bottom of the pack where all the weight is from the water was just like slapping <laughs> against my back. And I was like, how do people run with the, these? This is ridiculous. Yeah. These um, are stupid. And I actually, I mean, the very first hydration vest that I bought and living in Florida, like, you you know, as most people you get into double digit runs in most parts of the world, you're going to need more than a handheld. Um, yeah. But I remember going to REI and buying, I, I still have it and I still use it, a Nathan hydration vest. I bought this five and a half years ago. I think I spent $120 on it. That thing easily has over like 1,500, maybe 2,000 miles on it. And it is still going strong. So yes, when you invest in good gear, it will last you a long, long time. It will vastly improve the quality of your runs. I I made the mistake of trying the cheap option first. I would never make that mistake again. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is too, sometimes, you know, we don't want to make that big investment because we want to make sure that something works for us or, you know, we want to make sure that we're like committed to needing this, this piece of gear. And when it comes to shoes, especially, I mean, invest in good shoes right away. Uh, don't, don't skimp out on a good pair of shoes that fit you properly, that are the right type of shoes for you. You know, that is something that, you're going to hate running if you're not wearing the right footwear. And if you want to see if running is is for you and, and you want to see if if you kind of can get into this and, and have some longevity in the sport, you have to be comfortable. And, you know, some people can run in all kinds of, of you know, maybe not so great gear, not comfortable in gear, and, and they can do amazing things. I am not one of those people. I have to be so 
comfortable. I cannot have any chafing. I cannot have anything bouncing. Like if I had a backpack on that was like bouncing, whatever, I would just immediately take it off and just leave it. Like I would just run with nothing. I can't be the least bit uncomfortable or, or, um, inconvenienced when I'm running. On that note, we had um, we had talked right before we pressed record about a recent mistake that you had made with your training. So to to end us off for today, to kind of come full circle, and I love that we're also ending on the comment of that we certainly do not have all of the answers to all the questions, all the problems all the time, even though we have come a long way and we have learned a lot. And I hope that you today had some laughs with us about, um, you know, the, the silly things that we've done. Um, what is a recent mistake that you have made just to emphasize the point that we all have a lot of, of learning to do when it comes to our own running experience? Yes. Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me. And second of all, I'd like to allow us to toot our own horns a little bit, because although this episode is a little um, self-deprecating and tongue-in-cheek, I have to say that you are an extraordinarily com- accomplished, credentialed sports nutrition professional and coach. And I personally like to think that I know what the heck I'm talking about when it comes to endurance uh, athletics and sports science for endurance runners. So um, if you're listening to this episode <laughs> thinking that we're like, well, I just listened to an episode talking to them, they didn't know what they're talking about. Like, I promise you, we do know what we're talking about, but Nobody knows everything. And the cool thing is that there's always more to learn because guess what? There's a lot, there's stuff that nobody knows yet that we haven't even figured out yet that we'll probably be talking about in 10, 15 years and say, remember when we didn't know this, but now we know it because that's science and that's cool. Um, so yes, first of all, to say, let's, let's do like the, you know, the CEO thing and say like, we're actually awesome and we know what we're talking about. But like I said, we're still people. And I'll tell you, um, this is, I'm training for the Boston Marathon right now. The first time I'm running Boston. And uh, it's my first, the first marathon training cycle in quite some time that I felt like, oh, this feels really good, right? Because of the issues I've been having coming back from having reds and yada, yada. And so um, I've been feeling really good. But uh, I did a long run a couple weeks ago that had some goal marathon pace work in it over hills. And in retrospect, I overcooked it a little bit on that long run, right? Double digit long run on hills, got some goal pace in there. Like I was just so excited, kind of like go out and I don't know, you know, sometimes you get and you're like, I want to just, I want to run hard today and see what happens. Um, And so, you know, as a whole, I would say if, if generally speaking, the run was supposed to be like a six out of 10, I'd say I was probably depleted myself to about an eight out of 10, right? Like I wasn't totally spent, but I worked harder than I probably should have. Now in years past, what I would have done was I kind of would just would have ignored that continued on my run streak, which I no longer do, by the way, I do not do not do run streaks and I do not endorse them whatsoever. Um, but I would have been like, oh, okay, yeah, nope, that happened. Look how fast I ran. Uh, I'm going to keep running, you know, blah, 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 the rest of my week. Instead, I recognized and said, all right, so I did that. <laughs> Acknowledge, I did that. That happened. Can't undo it. What I can't control is my response. And I can make sure because I have to continue training this week, I have workouts I need to accomplish. I have a long run I need to do next weekend that my primary goal is going to be recover as well as I possibly can so that I can accomplish what I need to on my midweek workout. And I can go kick that long runs, butt the next weekend, because 
if I wasn't recovered, it would basically, well, we know can, that can um, snowball, right? So it's very, you know, cumulative. So if I was under recovered and didn't pay attention to recovery, and then all of a sudden my midweek workout was too hard and I'm under recovered still. And then my blah, 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 like it keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. So what did I do? I doubled down on my nutrition. I got some extra sleep, right? I was like, I went ultra easy on a couple runs leading, you know, afterwards. So what did I do? I basically said, <laughs> I made a mistake, just a little one. But I have the tools in place and I know what to do to fix it. And I fixed it. That was it. It took a couple of days back to where I was. No issues there. And so, you know, it's not just about never making a mistake. It's about being human, but having the tools to say, all right, so I did this thing or this thing happened. What can I do to best respond to it that will set me up for success continuing to move forward? So I'm very proud of that mistake that I made because I feel like I responded to it reasonably well. I love that. And I think also not being afraid of kind of altering the plan a little bit to adjust for these things, because I think too, a lot of runners and and we've all been there, we've all been that runner who, you know, you're, you're happy to go over and above the plan, but you would never go down. Like if, if a run says that you're running seven miles today, even if you went over on your previous run, there is no way you're running a meter less than seven miles today. And, you know, to be able to kind of adjust those things and be okay with it, you know, like again, not taking time off only because you have to, because you're so injured that you absolutely can't run, but being okay with scaling it down a little bit, taking it down a notch so that you can then, you know, get the rest you need to be able to come back to your plan that much faster. Whereas if you just continue kind of pedal to the metal and, and just keep driving forward, this is where then we need to take more time off for bigger injuries or burnout down the road. So fixing things, being okay with adjusting the plan in the short term allows you far more success and longevity in the long run. So thank you so much for this episode. It was so much fun to have this conversation and I hope that everyone listening enjoyed it as well and, you know, laughed with us and also maybe at us a little bit along the way. And so tell us more about Running Explained, um, you know, the podcast, the business and where people can find you. Yeah. Thank you. First of all, have fun editing this one down. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so you can find me Running Explained. I am most active on Instagram uh, at Running Explained. I also have a website that details all the ways that you can work with me or a member of my coaching team. Not only do I have training plans available, but I have what I call training plus programs. So it's training, uh, training plan with expanded education for your half or full marathon group coaching, of course, one-on-one coaching. And I am developing, I have master classes, kind of like single topic deep dives um, that are are being released more frequently now this year. So you can, uh, oh, I also have a podcast, the Running Explained podcast. So if you haven't listened to Stephanie's two excellent episodes, two, three, oh my God, you're a three-peat guest, three excellent episodes, one from each of the three seasons that have been released thus far, you should go check that out, do a little cross-listening. All right. Thank you so much. And we will see you everyone listening episode. Bye for now. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not to be used or relied upon for the diagnosis or treatment of any health condition. This information does not create a client practitioner relationship and should not be used as a substitute for professional medical advice.